I'm a cardiologist by training and practice. I did my medicine training at Massachusetts General Hospital, and I then did my cardiology fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis, which is a great clinical and academic powerhouse. And then I went out to Portland, Oregon for my first job and did something quite different. And I started my own practice from scratch, which isn't done much these days. I built a practice essentially from nothing into a very busy, big clinical practice in metropolitan Portland. And after I did that for seven years, I had an opportunity to go to the Mayo Clinic. And so I've been there for the last three years as the director of thoracic aortic aneurysms in the Arizona practice and started and sort of built their you know, referral center for aortic aneurysms. And and then two years ago, I started looking to do something different. You know, I've been in practice for over 10 years, uh, doing very well, uh, really pretty good at it. And But in some sense, it became sort of routine. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Jay Shaw. He's the Chief Medical Officer at Actia. It's spelled A-K-T-I-I-A, S-A, Actia, S-A. So we're going to talk about hypertension and his work as, as a CMO for this company and hypertension in general. So, Jay, thank you for coming. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, tell me a bit about your background and then about Actia and what its function is. Yeah, sure. So I started, I'm a cardiologist uh, by training and practice. I did my medicine training at Massachusetts General Hospital. And I, I then did my cardiology fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis, which is a great clinical and academic powerhouse. And then I went out to Portland, Oregon for my first job and did something quite different. And I started my own practice from scratch, which isn't done much these days. I built a practice essentially from, from not nothing into a very busy, big clinical practice in, in metropolitan Portland. And after I did that for seven years, I had an opportunity to go to the Mayo Clinic. And so I've been there for the last three years as the director of thoracic aortic aneurysms in the Arizona practice and started and sort of built their you know, referral center for aortic aneurysms. And, and then about two years ago, I started looking to do something different. You know, I've been in practice for over 10 years, I, you know, doing very well, is really pretty good at it. And, but in some sense, it became sort of routine. And I wanted to start it to look for a different way to impact more patients, more people, and using my clinical experience and using my expertise, but in a different way. And so that led me to sort of a journey of exploration. And I met with and talked to hundreds of physicians doing other, doing other activities other than clinical medicine. And in the end, I found uh, this Swiss startup called Actia. And we, you know, and I joined as the chief medical officer now about 18 months ago. So that was sort of my personal journey through, you know, career of medicine and now into uh, a digital health or health tech startup. Okay. So what is Actia about? So Actia is about, is founded by two Swiss scientists that started at, at CSCM, which is in Lausanne, Switzerland. And really the, the purpose of Actia is to help change the way we think about diagnose, treat, and manage hypertension and its attendant cardiovascular risk. And the primary technology or core technology at, at the heart of the product 
is essentially the world's first continuous blood pressure monitor. So it's a wearable device and you just wear it on the wrist and you don't really have to think much or do anything else about it. And then automatically and passively checks your blood pressure multiple times through the day, about 20 to 30 times a day and 200 times a week. And you don't ever have to stay, sit still or be in any certain position or do anything specific for it to check your blood pressure. So that is sort of the... Yeah, that is sort of the transformational technology at the heart of the product. And then around that, build an experience for patients so that they can really become empowered and aware of their risks and take action and actually improve their risks and be a, be a much stronger part of their health journey than I think to date most patients are. All right. So what are you observing by, by your test subjects having this on all day long, right? So there's a lot of things that we we can actually see. So first of all, it solves one of the biggest problems in blood pressure management and hypertension management is that people just generally don't check their blood pressure. And physicians have to manage blood pressure in an almost complete vacuum of data. And and there's reasons for that. There, so blood pressure cuffs everybody's familiar with, and this has been around for over 50 years in the same form that they are exist today. And there are numerous studies that show that most people, even with hypertension, rarely check their blood pressure, such that even people who have hypertension, only 24% of people check their blood pressure even once a week with traditional cuffs. And the recommendation is to check it twice a day. And part of the reason for that is that it's so cumbersome to check your blood pressure. You have to, with a cuff, you have to sit down, relax, put your feet on the floor, back against a chair, don't talk, don't drink for 30 minutes, don't smoke, be in a quiet room have an empty bladder, have no nothing on your arm in terms of clothing, breathe deeply, and then check your blood pressure. And that's how you're supposed to check it. And that's how all blood pressure cuffs have been validated. And it's just a cumbersome thing. It interrupts your daily life. But, but wait, they don't even they don't check it like that in the doctor's office. They don't check it like that in the hospital either. Yeah, that's your right. That is their right. recommendation. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So you're nobody, you know, in the, in the physician's office, we don't check it that way, Most most physicians. It is that you don't have time for that. In the in the hospital, you're lying down in a bed with 15 tubes in you and the thing's beeping and, you're, and you check your blood pressure. And the answer is that that's the only way cuffs have ever been validated or proven is in that highly controlled setting I just described. But yet we use cuffs all the time in all these other settings. They're just not, not in validated settings. So that's the tradition of blood pressure cuffs. And part of the reason that for people who have hypertension or who, ha- who want to check their blood pressure or do, it's a, just a cumbersome sort of approach. So part of the major advance of the technology of Actia is that it solves for those problems of outpatient, meaning checking your blood pressure at home. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to do something specific. All you have to do is wear the bracelet. And, that, and that's truly all really you have to do. And you get multiple blood pressure measurements over time. And the other major thing that cuffs and the sort of tradition of blood pressure measurements ingrained in us is the concept that is completely false of having a quote-unquote stable blood pressure. And what does that mean? It means that if you sit down and do that highly controlled experiment and check your blood pressure with a cuff, and let's say you get 120 over 80, then people assume that at all other times of the day, throughout the day, throughout the night, during work, during you know, at home, playing with kids, running around, doing all their normal things, they assume that that blood pressure is constant at 120 over 80. And the fact is, is that is completely untrue. So So what are you observing in these continuous measurements? Yeah. So the blood pressure fluctuates. 
yeah, the blood pressure fluctuates with time, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day. And we observe that with the continuous measurements that we take, we see those trends. We see the trends day to day. What happens in the morning? What happens in the afternoon? What happens in the evening? What happens at night? We see peaks, valleys. We see averages. We see trends over time. And once you start expanding the window from one point in time to weeks, months, years, you can see that, okay, what happened in dry January? Did my blood pressure on average fall? Did it go, Did it? was it unchanged? Or I did an experiment when I started doing exercise and I, I bought this exercise equipment. I started an experiment exercise. You can actually start to see the feedback loop on your blood pressure. And you start to see that it makes a difference. And we see that in our patients, in our subjects. They're not test subjects. In Europe, we're approved and there were 35,000 people using it. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. But what do you see in general in people? What is the typical diurnal cycling of it? What are the commonplace things you see besides the excursions? So... First of all, there isn't. So the idea of having a normal or a common trend doesn't exist. There's a pattern. Everyone has a certain pattern. But what we see is that people are actually self-grouping themselves into about seven to 10 different types of patterns. None of this is known before. Nobody had, you know, has, has done this or shown this before because they've never had the data that we have. There isn't one common pattern of blood pressure. There's many common, but there's many patterns and that people can probably, you know, can be grouped into at least seven to 10 of them. What do those patterns mean? That's hard to say. That's the data that we generate is far ahead of, of the evidence that we have. And so that's where research studies and researchers are highly interested in looking at that data to understand what does that mean for an outcomes, cardiovascular risk. What is a common pattern, for instance, or what are the patterns? Yeah, so there, in, in, there are a lot of the literature comes from ambulatory blood pressure monitors where people have a, supposedly a, a lower blood pressure at night on average when you're sleeping. So not at night, but when you're sleeping and then a rise in the morning and then a sort of a steady-ish state throughout the day, but it's not really steady. It's just there's variation, but it sort of usually goes up in the morning and then kind of trends down. That's one of the patterns that we see. And then towards the evening, it, it kind of you know lowers again as they go to sleep. But as I said, those are those patterns are described based on very limited data. So it really, a lot of what we're getting with this continuous data are patterns that have never really been described before. Okay. Do you, do you have any, uh, any insight to what's going on? Is it the person laying down or sitting or standing or, you know, what, what are some of the factors that contribute to the blood pressure so far with the data you're seeing? Yeah, there are, so there are many things that contribute to the variations in blood pressure, and I think we're only scratching the surface. It's, it has little to do with position. You know, so for example, I'll give you an example. So there's, there is something that exists in 
in the transition time between sleeping and when you wake up, there is a, a transition time called the acceleration of the morning rise. And in pe certain people, that rise from sleeping to awake is very rapid and very steep. And in others, it's more gradual. And there is some existing evidence to suggest that the people who have a steeper rise in that morning time period have a higher cardiovascular risk. What does that actually have to do with? Well, it probably has to do with a lot of underlying hormonal shifts and adrenaline and cortisol and multiple other factors. The person isn't controlling it. They don't have any knowledge of that, of that rise. But that is one example that we can detect who has a higher shift, who has a higher or more accelerated morning rise and who has a more gradual morning rise. And those are aspects that are correlated with risk. Another example is nighttime hypertension, nighttime high blood pressure. When you're sleeping, your blood pressure is actually high. People don't know that. There's no way to, you don't feel your high blood pressure at night. You don't check it. So if you're wearing Arpactia, you'll be able to see this higher, higher blood pressure at night. And that is clearly associated with multiple other risks as well as some other disorders like sleep apnea and other things. So there's a lot to unpack there that, again, we don't have all the answers yet, but you know, these, these are parts of the data set that are, you know, really transformational. Does it uh, take your blood pressure by squeezing you like a cuff or how does it take the blood pressure? Yeah, no, it doesn't squeeze your arm at all. You don't even feel it. So it, it works with a technology called photoplethysmography or PPG for short. But basically it's two LED lights that sit on the skin of your arm that shine light into your skin and a reflection comes back through uh, to an optical sensor in the in the device, and it creates a shape. The reflection creates a, a relative shape based on the capillaries or the blood flowing through your skin. And those shapes are then analyzed. The shapes of those waveforms are analyzed by our proprietary algorithms and software, and that's what it's really uh, is based on. And so our founders have developed a technique over the last two decades to look at those waveforms and then deliver back an accurate blood pressure. So it's completely different than what people traditionally think of as blood pressure devices where you have this cuff that squeezes your arm and then relaxes and it generates, you know, a blood pressure data based on that pattern of relaxation of the cuff. Okay. So how accurate is this versus a traditional cuffs? Yeah, it's as accurate as a cuff. We have data on that, that in that standard seated position that all cuffs are tested in, we meet the same accuracy of a, as a cuff. Now, the, the the trick is, or the or the difference is, we also take measurements when you're lying down. We take measurements when you're standing up. We take measurements when you're having a meeting in the office. And no cuff has ever been validated in any of those positions. But we meet the accuracy of a cuff in the only position that they have been validated in. So is this available for prescription from your doctor, or what stage is that? No, it's... Um, so in... We're approved in Europe and through seven countries so far, and we have access to 44 more. The, it is, as all blood pressure monitors are, is over-the-counter. So you can buy it over-the-counter directly through our website if you're in one of those markets. We also have a number, so it's over-the-counter is the first answer. And then it is also available to healthcare providers as well as insurance companies in Europe. And we have a number of groups and organizations that are that are deploying the technology within their populations. So healthcare providers are, you know, monitoring proactively people's blood pressure in between office visits and actively making changes to the medications or treatment regimens, even without the person ever having to communicate or be in the office or come in to see the, the physician. And so it really enables a different 
type of management of high blood pressure. So it's not available in the U.S. yet? It's not yet available in the U.S. We are engaged with the FDA and have been working uh, working with them now for over a year and we'll continue to work with them to bring it to, to the U.S. market. So could someone order it or can't even order it online? It's not- no, if you, it, without without regulatory approval in the country, you, you know, you can't market or sell it in that country. So what kind of uh, uses is it being used for in Europe and other places? What are people saying as feedback? So we're getting tremendous feedback from our users as well as our physician and, and uh, payer partners. So use cases, for example, of a of a directive of a patient who orders it directly from their from online, you know, they're able to measure and monitor their blood pressure in a proactive way. They have that data, bring it into their physician or send it into their physician's office. So it enables them to make better, smarter, faster decisions uh, about their blood pressure. And we get a tremendous number of comments and and feedback from them at how easy it is. From from the physician side and payers, we have one of the largest insurance companies in Italy and the second largest in Switzerland that are actually deploying it over their covered lives. And it's having dramatic uptake in those. And in those use cases, what they're doing is that the physicians and the provider groups are remotely monitoring and managing their patients' blood pressure without those patients having to go into a brick and mortar office. So it's being used very efficiently to deliver healthcare without the sort of hassle of. How is anyone taking action on the readings if no one knows anything? If you're saying there's different patterns and different numbers. The, what we were talking about is that we we're talking about the patterns of the blood pressure, but it still generates readings like 130 over 80 or 140 over 90. And so we deliver that data to physicians in a concise way. Like, for example, if you wore it for two weeks, we would deliver a weekly average to a physician. In addition to all the granular de- detail, but we say, here's the weekly average for Richard. And that's what physicians act on anyway. That's what we that's what we act on today, is we look at averages over weeks, not day to day, not individual readings. We want to look at a week's worth of readings and make decisions based on that. Well, that's that's you know level zero for us, um, and we deliver that information very simply and easily. Well, can people get the data through the app? Also, they have to go to their physician, have them download it. Are they locked out no. of the data? No, not at all. No. So. Um, the on the patient side, if they buy this over the counter, they're on their phone. They get their full report and all their data. And if their physician is also using it, using our software, they the physician automatically gets their data also. But but it's but it doesn't have to be through a physician's office. So it, the focus is on the patient side. They get the information right away. They can they can email that to their physician. They can send it in. They can bring it in. But it doesn't require a physician to use it, just similar to any blood pressure device on the market. Okay. So again, people that buy it over the counter, what kind of feedback do you get from them versus people that are under a doctor's care? You know, I think people really engage with it in a similar way, but the reasons for using it might be slightly different. So for example, people who said there are certain types of people who just really want to be proactive about their health and wellness, and they feel that more data will help them sort of track their trends and track their risk. And so that's a small group of, of people who buy it over the counter. But the majority of our users are over the age of 55 and usually in their 60s. And so these are people generally who might have hypertension already and just want an easier way to track their blood pressure data. And so again, that's the feedback that we get from consumers, our patients. 
that are looking at their own data and they're, they're, it's making it much easier for them to track the information that their physicians already asked them and they want to know themselves. And so we get a tremendous amount of positive feedback. There's a lot of caregivers that then say, okay, I'm taking care of my mom or dad or my brother or sister. And part of their care is that they need to have their blood pressure monitored for different medications or different medical conditions. Well, I have a much easier way to track that information now rather than having to try to put a cuff on twice a day and try to measure their blood pressure. And then the, on the provider side, imagine every time that person, traditionally that per, uh, patient has to come into the office or somehow deliver readings of blood pressure to that physician, and the physician has to look at those readings, you know, calculate an average, then decide whether something needs to change. Well, again, we streamline all of that. And those, the physicians are getting that data proactively and they can just make decisions much, much more efficiently than traditional hypertension management. So that you can make medication changes in a week or two, rather than waiting for three to six months for that person to come back and give you their data and give you those readings. What about systolic versus diastolic patterns? What are you seeing in those? Like how different are they? Are you asking how different are they as compared to blood pressure cuffs? Well, or I don't even know if anyone really... Again, I'm a late person, but uh, from what I've been told, the uh, the bottom number, I forget what it's called, diastolic. Diastolic, yep. Is more important. It's more of a harbinger of blood pressure yeah. problems. You know, the higher that number is, uh, the yeah. top number seems to relate more to stress, white coat syndrome, you know, yeah. being active, et cetera. But what are you guys seeing that you didn't know before using this device versus just cups? Well, the first thing I would say is just so for your listeners that both numbers are important. Is one isn't really more important than the other. They say different. They talk about different things in in the arteries of your body. That systolic is the pressure in the arteries during a heartbeat when the heart actually squeezes. The pressure goes up to accommodate more blood. That's the systolic number. The diastolic number is the pressure in the arteries between heartbeats. So in between each heartbeat, that pressure comes down to a, some level baseline. That's the diastolic. Both are important. And they both contribute in different ways to cardiovascular risk. So when we look at blood pressure numbers, either with Actia or any other or any other device, again, what you really want to look at is trends over time and a, an aggregation of multiple measurements of blood pressure, ideally, over a long period of time to really understand what is your systolic average, what is your diastolic average, and then you make decisions about that. When you look at how blood pressure is treated, neither number is favored in treatment. It's either or. It's If both numbers are high, then you need to make a change. If the systolic only is high, you still need to make a change. If the diastolic only is high, it still it still means that there, there are changes necessary. So it, it really is, you know, there used to be consideration and people used to talk that one number is more important than that, but it's not really true. And that's not how the treatment goes now. And so really where Actia is helpful here is by giving people that longitudinal data set, by giving them multiple, many, many data points so they can really make an assessment based on on time, not just one point in time or a couple points in time. Well, you said you saw like seven different uh, patterns. Was that more confined to one of the readings versus the other or no. both or either very way that surprised you? No. So those patterns have to do with what you referred to before, the circadian patterns. So the pattern uh, over of blood pressure over 24 hours. And when people wear Actia for, let's say, three months or six months, 
we start to see these patterns emerge because we're getting 800 data points per month. And so you can start to map out their average circadian pattern over three months. And there's multiple different patterns that people demonstrate. Now, what do you, what is that, what do those mean? I think that's a matter still for research. I mean, we don't know exactly how to, how to treat people differently or which patterns mean have a higher risk or a lower risk. That's really what we're studying right now. But those patterns had never really been demonstrated before because no device, you know, was able to capture that many readings over that much time. Are you seeing more variation in systolic versus diastolic or are there as many patterns it's, in both or are they kind of married to each other? You know, the one will move with the other. Yeah, they, they kind of do move together. Diastolic moves less than systolic. That's always true. So diastolic, the movement of the diastolic numbers is always smaller than the movement of systolic, but they kind of move usually in the same direction. Yeah. So the, so the patterns are, are accounting for both systolic and diastolic. This is not just one or the other. Well, one thing that comes to mind is if my heartbeat is 60 beats a minute versus someone that, let's say, it's, it's 80 beats a minute, their resting heart rate is much higher. Is there a necessary or associated recovery time that would affect the systolic or diastolic? So if my heart beats, my vessels expand, and then they, they come back to their you know, in-between beat expansion level, but now another heartbeat comes before they can fully relax back, would that artificially amplify my systolic reading? Would it affect the diastolic? Is there any dynamic there based on, again, rate of heart rate? heart rate. No, yeah. I mean, in the physiologic range of heart rates, let's just say, you know, 50 beats a minute to 180, 190, that time period is is not really relevant. It happens so quickly that recalibration re of their pressure. It gets difficult to measure blood pressures when your heart rate is extremely high, you know, like 200, because you lose that time in between systolic and diastolic. It becomes very small. But, um, but I would think too, like as you become atherosclerotic, as you get older, the elasticity changes, and therefore I would think the recovery time would change between beats, which would affect the pressure readings. Does anyone, is that a phenomenon or is that just... It, so the... As the elastic, yeah, no, no, it's a good question. So, like, as the elasticity decreases with age, which it usually does, actually the recovery time gets faster because mm -hmm. the arteries are stiffer, and so the principles of sort of fluid dynamics and physics dictate that actually the time it takes to go from the highest pressure to the to the baseline pressure, the diastolic number, actually gets quicker. So it actually doesn't really affect the blood pressure in the way that that you're asking. But what does happen sometimes is people get older, and if, let's say, the vessels become very stiff, then that's what happens with the systolic, it doesn't, it doesn't really affect the pressure measurement, but the systolic number oftentimes becomes markedly higher than the diastolic. And this is, this is a phenomenon sometimes in, with people, in elderly with really stiff arteries, more of an isolated systolic hypertension. And that's a known entity. That, and the heart beats and it pumps the blood, but into really stiff pipes, that pressure just shoots up dramatically because there's no elasticity of the vessels anymore. And it also drops dramatically. So it's really the systolic goes really high, but that diastolic might be normal. So that's the yeah, it's like, um Okay, so may, it sounds like perhaps the opposite phenomenon is happening. Um, the heart's beating and pressurizing the vessels and they're stiff. And then, well, no, I guess it doesn't. I just didn't know if it's like, um, I picture like a balloon that's, that has a hole in it and I'm blowing into it, and if I blow fast enough, the balloon will inflate anyway. But if I do nothing, it'll you know deflate because of the hole. 
I just wondered again if the uh, the age elasticity contributes in any way, but it's different than what I thought. Yeah, I know it's it's kind of the opposite. Yeah, but but it does contribute. It's just it contributes in a different way. Okay. Um, at what point do you feel like you'll have enough actionable data to make recommendations for patients? Like, uh, are you waiting to get you know millions of data points over thousands well, of people, or at what, yeah, we, at what point will this be? Um, I don't know. It'll be yeah, no, it's, significant. it's clinically available now, not in the U.S. yet, but in in Europe. Right. Um, it's being used in patients, and we have a lot of clinical data. We have, oh, like I said, over thirty-five thousand users. We have over eighty-five million data points already. So, so the so the data is there now. We're studying it in in more and more use cases. So, for example, what does what do specific medications do to the blood pressure, and how does how does our readings and activity specifically track those? For example, um, and we're studying it in more and more types of disease states. So, for example, we're doing a study right now in uh, type two diabetics, just to make sure that our our device and the measurements are performed accurately into type 2 diabetics as they do in, in people who don't have diabetes. And then we expand to chronic kidney disease and then we expand to heart failure and on and on and on. We just continually do these studies to really expand the number of people who, who we ha- where we have validation data. Okay. What's next on your uh, product roadmap, if you're able to say? You know, what, what yeah. features are going to come for this device or... So all the things we've been talking about so far are, are really related to, to high blood pressure and blood pressure monitoring. But really where we're going with this is we are starting to layer around the blood pressure, which is the primary input to almost all significant cardiovascular diseases, chronic kidney disease, even visual diseases. It is a primary risk and driver of those diseases. So as we grow our data set, we are starting to layer around the blood pressure data set clinical data points as well. So biometric measurements, lab data, imaging data. And we're doing a lot of studies to then link all those pieces of information together so that not only can we deliver just blood pressure numbers and measurements, but we can start to deliver individualized risk assessments. So for example, we were talking about those sort of different patterns and how people you know, have different circadian patterns, but we don't know right now what those mean. But as we put all those data points together, we can start to draw insights from them and then start to understand, okay, this pattern, you know, is a marker of chronic kidney disease in the future. And this pattern has a marker of a higher risk of stroke. But this pattern, even though their blood pressure is normal, they're still at higher risk for cardiovascular disease or heart attack. And so we can start to really deliver the insights from those from those blood pressure parameters that currently just doesn't exist. It's either you have high blood pressure or you don't. It's very binary. It's a very one size fits all type of management right now. But we can start to really get personalized and personalized insights, personalized treatments. And so that's really what we're layer, layering around the core technology uh, for the for the near term, you know, future. Is anyone on a um, food and blood pressure diary? for a couple of weeks, you know, mm-hmm. look at the blood pressure before and after you eat and see if, uh, you know, what they're eating. It's uh, a message with their blood pressure at all. Yes. Yes. So people have done that with traditional methodologies. Now we are looking to do that, not just with food, yes, but also many other factors. So food, alcohol, genomics, exercise, activity, measurements, uh, physical measurements of like, let's say waist size, waist circumference, hip circumference, chest circumference, looking at all those data points 
and then looking at what happens with their patterns before or after an intervention. I think that's crucial to really mapping out and understanding blood pressure in a much more comprehensive way than historically that we've done it. So the answer is yes, but there's a lot. And food is one of those aspects, and there's many, many more. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay. Well, excellent. Uh, Jay, what's the best way for people to keep tabs, especially those of us who are bastards in America that don't have this yet? <laughs> so the easiest way, yeah, you can go on our website, actia.com, A-K-T-I-I-A.com, and there's a, you can just sign up for updates, and so we push out all the updates about where we are and any product updates and you know our roadmap eventually into the U.S., uh, we'll push it out on the on the mailing list. You can also follow us on all the major social media channels at Actia Global, um, and you can also search me on LinkedIn and uh, and I'm, I'm there as well. Okay, very good. Well, Jay, thank you for what you guys do at Actia. I think it's going to be a big time game changer as more people use it. So I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.